This episode is brought to you by PagerDuty. In an always-on world, teams trust PagerDuty to help them deliver a perfect digital experience to their customers every time. With PagerDuty, teams spend less time reacting to incidents and more time building for the future. From digital disruptors to Fortune 500 companies, over 12,000 businesses rely on PagerDuty to identify issues and opportunities in real time and bring together the right people to fix problems faster and prevent them from happening again. We're like the central nervous system for a company's digital operations. We can analyze digital signals from virtually any software-enabled system and help you intelligently pinpoint issues like outages as well as capitalize on opportunities while empowering teams to take the right real-time action. To see how companies like GE, Vodafone, Box, and American Eagle Outfitters rely on PagerDuty to continuously improve their digital operations, visit pagerduty.com. Welcome to episode 150 of Greater Than Code. I'm your co-host, Rain Henricks, with my co-host, Jacob Stobel. Hello, and I am here with our guest this week, Brian Lonsdorf. Brian is best known for his work teaching functional programming via JavaScript under the moniker Professor Frisbee. He is an architect at Salesforce and works in machine learning applied to UX. Brian, welcome. Hey. We'll, we'll start the way we always do by asking you, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? You mentioned that you had asked me this question, so I was like, I'm going to think about this question. And then I was like, well, all right, well, I guess it was that I happened to have learned functional programming earlier than others. And I was like, that's not really a superpower. I, I ended up making a lot of like little artsy, fun videos. I'm, I've been super interested in that. And I was like, I think I'm creative. I can do this. Uh, there's so many more creative people that are like can draw and do claymation and after effects and all these great things that I can't do. So I was like, it's maybe, maybe that's not it. I would say my superpower is, is I can communicate and listen in a, in a way that uh, others seem to think I'm good at. So I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which I guess gravitates, you know, m- makes me want to get into teaching and stuff because people are like, oh, when I talk to you about it, it makes sense. I'm like, oh, cool. And I guess I acquired that because I need everybody to like me and ended up being a mediator growing up and <laughs> got pretty mm-hmm. good at understanding that realm. So what would you say is the role of empathy in teaching or communicating? I try to understand other people's modus operandum. <laughs> like, what it, why are we doing what we're doing and, and trying to get down to their motivations? And I think empathy is part of that for sure. Like, what are you feeling right now? And, and how can I help you get navigate tough conversations or hard things that you're trying to learn or, or whatever it is? Putting yourself in other people's shoes gets you down to kind of their level and what they're going through so you can better communicate. I think that's that's really, really important. Uh, what, what would you say, though, about empathy? I'm just curious because, yes, that's such a great question. I feel like you know a lot more about it than I There are different forms of empathy, and one of them is called process empathy, which is being able to empathize with the experiences of others. And then another one is called empathetic report, which is being able to develop a trusting relationship with someone Mm -hmm. else. And for me, I, I think what you're describing is more along the lines of understanding how people experience the world, process information, that sort of a thing. Right, right. But yeah, definitely, I think it's important at every stage, like you mentioned, there's, it's not just the one, one version. But that's cool. I, and I think that tends to happen a lot when I try to teach stuff, because I'll pick something really ridiculous to talk to people about or, or try to, to teach them about. And then, you know, you get out of your, your comfort zone pretty quick. And so uh, it helps to have someone who can empathize with that. You mentioned just a minute ago that you happened to have learned functional programming early. <laughs> and I, I think that is, that's a really empathetic way to put it, because I think we have an industry where we, we put a lot of value in like what you know, and when you got in on it, and it's almost like it's, you know, a stock or something, did you get in early? And yeah, I think just sort of like, acknowledging that you happened to know something is very different from, you know, making you an inherent genius or making you, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think there are people who are quite good at picking the next big thing. And so there is something to it. But at the end of the day, we follow our paths and we have our interests and we just, you know, sometimes the chips land in our court and whatever, to mix metaphors. (laughs) (laughs) 
So what what is it about functional programming that made you latch onto it and decide to devote so much of your energy towards you know teaching it, learning it, teaching it, that sort of a thing? Well, with that, I'm sold on the on the whole idea of it, and it's because I mean I could give you the quick spiel, right? It's a you write a program, it's a you know th- tens of thousands of lines, and it's just procedural instructions, right? And and this is where we begin. And we're like, this is not maintainable. How do we pull out chunks of code so that we could maintain this application, reuse parts, and try to further the understanding of, of readers? And so what you're doing is you're taking a chunk of, of instructions and, and putting it in an abstraction. It's just like, that's what we do, right? And if that abstraction does not have any laws or rules of composition, um, and that abstraction is is rooted in its environment, then you're doomed from the beginning, right? Uh, you can go so far with metaphors and, and learning and documentation and such, but having a solid unit that you can reason about, and because when you're saying reuse, you mean compose, right? You want to be able to compose it later. And so functional programming is like, okay, we will establish rules around this unit of, of code and how it composes. Now, in practice, it's still a big mess and everybody's still trying to figure it out. It's not any, it's like, you know, just as, as good and bad as object oriented or, or logic or imperative. But that's why I'm sold on it. So when I came to terms with that, like, I was like, okay, like, this is the thing I believe in, but other people tend to not believe in that or understand it. And most of the time, actually, from when I started, they were thinking I was talking about procedural code until, you know, React came out. <laughs> so basically, I wanted to spend a lot of time because I was just so sold on the idea and everyone around me was not. And I just I was like, there's got to be a way to explain this in a simpler way and then help us all as an industry level this up because I'm still not satisfied with <laughs> functional code. But if we're all working on it like we are an object oriented code, then I think it, it has a lot more potential. So you said, and I'm going to sort of condense and paraphrase you here. So tell me if I'm misrepresenting you. Uh, you said that functional programming is about sort of lawful composition. That's what I would uh, boil it down to after all these definitions I've heard over the years. I kind of landed on lawful composition, meaning, you know, if you have a function, it's a mathematical function, it has laws, it composes mm-hmm. certain ways, it has guarantees. And the more you learn about functional programming with like you know, category theory and functors and profunctors and arrows and all these things. They're, you know, they're just fancy names for different ways you can compose these things mm-hmm. with, within the world of laws. So, yeah. so um, R- yeah. Richard Bird, uh, who wrote a book called Thinking Functionally with Haskell recently, uh, which is one of my favorite books on functional programming, talks about compositional thinking. Right. And it seems that his goal in that book is to get people to think compositionally as opposed to about application. Yeah, that's a beautiful mind shift because you're breaking down the problem, but then you're recomposing it. And most mm-hmm. people break down the problem, but don't often also think about how to recompose it. Yeah, there's some interesting parallels here. So, for example, Russell Ackoff, who was a management theorist and operational research person and whatnot, he actually called himself an applied psychologist, which was interesting. One of his maxims is the interactions between pieces are at least as important as the pieces themselves. Oh, yeah, that's it, right? That's the, that's the jam, the morphisms. Very, very true. You can capture, I mean, it's a superset, right? You can't understand the interactions if you just have the pieces, but you can usually understand the pieces if you have the interactions. And so in, in category theory, there's you, you get sort of drilled into you pretty early on that category theory is about the arrows and that the objects are really just there to connect the arrows. Yeah. And for me, this is sort of the basic essential difference between object-oriented programming and functional programming. Um, Although if you listen to Alan Kay, Alan Kay would say that the messages are what is important in object-oriented programming. Right. And the messages are the arrows between the objects uh, in a a somewhat rigorous sense. But a lot of object-oriented programmers seem to focus on the objects. And a lot of functional programmers seem to focus on the, uh, the data types. That's super true. I, I noticed that very, very early on that like, oh, wait, we're right back into dynamic dispatch on these type class lookup methods or, you know, protocols or, you know, whatever functional language you're, you're picking up has ways to say like, 
oh yeah, this function works with this data type, and when it calls it on this other one, we have polymorphic behavior, and, and you're right back to where you started. However, and then they run into all the same problems. It's the, you know, the typical, what's it called, the row versus column issue where you extend a uh, object with more methods or you extend a function with more types. That problem, you know, persists in both paradigms. And there's ways... Yeah, the, you know, uh, the expression problem. The expression problem, thank you. In, in my mind, if you're focused on the, the interactions between things, that's a great start. But if there is no laws around how they interact, then it becomes very hard to continue to compose and build on something. And so in Alan and Kay's approach, I, I, he's brilliant and, and I totally you know, think it's great. But I, I also feel like that for me is missing. And that's why I, I gravitate much more towards the category theory side and why I'm not still satisfied with my current programming you know, skill set and paradigms. I'm like still feeling you know, pain daily <laughs> in, in, mm -hmm. in functional programming. So it's not a panacea by any means. But, and I think that might be one of the reasons. So, okay, I have a question for you. If you want to do compositional programming, why are you doing it in JavaScript? <laughs> and I, I don't say that to, to crap on JavaScript. I say that yeah. because JavaScript is a language that doesn't make composition ergonomic. No, you're like, 100%. Like, like Haskell does, for example. Yeah. And, and I, I do promote and, and very much enjoy PureScript and, and Haskell and, and other languages like that. I typically have not found a job that I want to do that's in those languages. And when I try to sneak them into my big company jobs, it doesn't usually fly. Uh, so I found myself <laughs> repeatedly being dragged back down into yeah. JavaScript land. <laughs> And, and I just believe in the paradigm, so it kind of ended up that way. However, uh, I, I will always, always first choose a language like, um, you know, Elm or PureScripts if I can. And, and I, also, I should say, though, you know, those languages are really hard. They're really hard to learn. They're really hard to write programs in. And if you get really good at it into where it's just second nature for you, like, it's not as easy as many, many other languages for your teammates to or members to, to learn and, and work with. So I... I Empathy comes into play there, for sure. So uh, even, even doing this in JavaScript is harder. <laughs> so. But you also, you want to teach. You want to sort of evangelize this style of programming. So Stephen Jay Gould has this idea that he applies to biological evolution and, and cultural evolution, where you have this population that has a bunch of variety, and this variety can span between some range, and there are limits imposed on that range. So for example, Response time for a server. There's a left wall at zero. A thing can't take zero time. Right? Yeah. But the right wall is potentially infinitely far away. Or in yeah. fact, it is infinitely far away because a server can never respond. Right? right? Or look at sports performance. There's a right wall to, let's say, uh, hitting percentages in baseball. No one's going to get to 400 anymore. It's not going to happen. So there's a right wall imposed by the structure of you know what people are doing by biology and so on. I think there's a right wall somewhere in the edification of like compositional functional programming where Haskell is pretty close. Yeah. It is pretty easy to do compositional programming in Haskell. And JavaScript is not as close. There's right, a lot right. of room to teach people how to do compositional programming in JavaScript. So if you're looking for a place to have an impact in terms of being a teacher or a communicator, it's there's more opportunity in javascript than there is in haskell yes yeah, that's, that's interesting i i think i don't know back in the day so this is kind of silly but back in the day you know i went through my punk rock phase and i went through my my you know hip-hop phase and and just like got into all different types of music and there was always a band that kind of like was was the the gap the you know the lily pad into the world right so for you know punk rock some people got into like no effects or blink 182 or something and then they got way into like you know like gnarly underground stuff right after that but or you know with hip hop you're like oh yeah we'll go with Dr. Dre and Wu-Tang and then you know like later on you're actually listening to you know decent music well i mean those are great uh music but you get into stuff that people just aren't typically familiar with and i see javascript as that that bridge <laughs> like the gateway drug to you know other other things so I had a silly idea uh, at some point where we just come up with the worst possible programming ideas, like just the like 
you, you say, like, what could be a terrible language feature? Like, just one that would just ruin applications. And now let's, let's make it. And there's two options I would have gone with. One is Lisp, and the other is JavaScript, to try to implement language features that don't actually exist yet. And because they're so flexible um, that you can kind of get away with a lot of a lot of stuff. So if you're, you know, just to throw it out there, like you could come up with language feature where you have a 12 sided die and it's like a data type and it just randomly grabs one of the one of the pieces of data off that 12 sided die. and You can never actually understand what's fully in there. So it's like a data protection by like impossible to non-determinism, right? But you can like implement that in JavaScript and pretend it's a language feature. But anyway, um, the point is <laughs> JavaScript is really flexible and, and I think you're right. There's a big range there to hit a hit a big spread of people who may not be familiar or want to even learn Haskell, but might want to benefit from the idea of lawful composition. So and, then, as and then get there. I'm one of those people. I write JavaScript and TypeScript in my day job. I don't really think I know, can say I know really anything about functional programming. What problems can, of mine can I solve by learning functional programming? I mean, so for me, the, the thing is people will push back on abstraction often in this day and age where, you know, and it's, it's wise, uh, people are like anti-dry programming, right? They're, they're into like, okay, let's just repeat yourself because it's way worse to have one thing trying to act like more than one thing. And when, when you start to create abstractions and you're using objects as metaphors to the real world, you start to find yourself naming things like processor. And you're like, well, that, there's no meaning to this. We just couldn't come up with a name that makes any sense because it's not a thing in the world, right? And so you stop inventing abstractions that need more like knowledge around the context of them and and kind of you know Sarah May has a great talk about livable code where it's like you're a bunch of roommates in a in a house and you're all sharing this stuff together uh, but you kind of have to know the rules of the of the land right you have to understand every every metaphor and, and every name and um, when you start to go into the functional realm you could pretty much benefit right off the bat from treating things as input to output functions and starting to capture some of the ideas from abstract algebra in your code that enable you to understand how this thing could assemble at the calling time. And that just tends to build up on itself to where all these rules carry through as you build more. So I think just to answer your question, you would benefit almost immediately from lawful abstraction and people being able to just come right in, look at a type signature and work with it from TypeScript uh, without having to understand any metaphors. But then depending on how far you want to go with it, you can get it way super pure code and then it all composes all the time, but then you're maintaining this like massive, you know, composition machine and, and it's, it, you know, and then you end up right back where you started. <laughs> so, so, so objects yeah. that are named something and baked into that name is meaning that may or may not be documented. And so we're trying our best to not do that. <laughs> yeah, decode and understand this this world of metaphors with objects versus encode a a kind of known mathematical structure to things. And there's there's a handful. Like if you know about ten of these, like if you understand groups or you understand you know, semi-rings or whatever, you can... <laughs> monads. <laughs> yeah, <it's a> monads. <laughs> you, you start to pick up different abstractions and then a lot of almost anything, you end up becoming more of a detective. You're like, oh, I have this thing. What is it? You know, let me look at its type signature. Let me try to generalize it. Oh, okay, look. Oh, my goodness. You know, I have a, you know, I have an operator here that can work across many things. I can do this in parallel, you know, becomes a monoid or whatever. And so... By by doing that, you start to build on abstractions in a very principled way. So your your application, it, just to quickly summarize, if I have two objects, an A and a B, and they're both of the same type and I combine them, I'm just going to get a new one that's of that same type, and I don't have any new abstractions. And that's typical in almost all abstract algebra programming is that you're trying to compose two things into one new thing that's that same type. So if I take two functions and I compose them, I get a new function. If I take, you know, two accounts and I compose them, I get a new account that's probably merged accounts or whatever. When you start to go into objects that are um, much more metaphor-based, 
the composition typically lends itself to like adapters and you end up with extra pieces as you go and it, and it just t- continually grows as far as you just go back to the naming processes and then putting rules around them rather than continually naming processes and stopping there. <laughs> Gabriel Gonzalez has a blog post and I think this is what you might be alluding to. It's that called exactly Scalable Program Architectures. Totally the one. <laughs> Read that one. Yeah, I really, I like that one. So the idea, like I'll, I'll, I'll just quote the first two things because it's pretty good explanation. Um, conventional architectures combine several components together of type A to generate a network or topology of type B. Whereas he calls the Haskell architecture, but what I think of as the monoidal architecture is that you combine several components together of type A to generate a new component of the same type A indistinguishable in character from its substituent parts. And so this idea that you can build up stuff without having to create a new kind of thing and learn what it's like is, is I think really interesting and important. Right. And I think that that's totally exactly what I was thinking of when I was saying that. Um, so good call. So yeah, I, I think, you know, it's interesting about this whole like kind of functional programming stuff is um, I'm shifting over into more of a machine learning data science role. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that a lot of these mathematical ideas carry through and, you know, trying to talk about distance functions and different ways to handle probabilities and, you know, concatting search spaces and distributions like as monoids. And, you know, these ideas are not, I mean, I guess single responsibility principle and this golf substitution, you know, like all these things mm-hmm. are like still available for thought, but they're not as daily useful. So I, I think that's, it's really, really important knowledge to have and, and learn and carries with you instead of, you know, just learning, you know, I learned, uh, did you ever learn like this basic, uh, lambda calculus and you're like, well, when is this ever useful? And then all of a sudden you're mm-hmm. dealing with like type level, you know, functions and you're like, oh my gosh, it's useful now. <laughs> so. That level of thing is is really interesting to me because we've moved from the realm of something that is very simple and abides known rules in a predictable way, composition of functions, to the realm of something that is too complex to fully describe. Yeah. So, like, we use artificial learning because we don't know how to program a decision tree to make a program do the thing. Totally right. And, in fact, uh, we have a rule on our team is that you have to write the program first before you try to beat it with a prediction because you might be able to get away with 99% without ever, like it's too complex, but you're, the stuff you couldn't capture was so irrelevant at that point that it didn't matter. Or, you know, you can write a great rule set that behaves perfectly for, you know, a, a certain domain, but as soon as you expand that domain, you're, you know, you're, you can't do it anymore. So, and that, that's still beating it, you know, through generality, but, that's, I think that's a really great rule because you don't have a benchmark if you're just doing predictions. You're like, hey, I got six, 96%. And it's like, but how does it really work? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but you're totally right. We're moving into that realm. And, and it's actually really cool. I mean, you can do uh, non-determinism with monads, right? The list monad. And you can kind of capture uh, probabilities and combine probabilities and you know, monoidally and, and so on. And so you can even start to use stuff like lattices to uh, climb up and down and it becomes a really just valuable set of skills that are beyond just like, now my programs are easier to read <laughs> if you're familiar with all these things. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really cool. Uh, so as far as, you know, the teaching and all that goes, I think that the JavaScript stuff definitely... I think it's like a different set of walls. Like you'll hit a wall in JavaScript where you can't, you just can't do some of this stuff. Recursion schemes comes to mind. I tried to encode uh, recursion schemes in JavaScript because I was very excited to, you know, crawl the, or walk the entire DOM and, you know, like hit it with multiple functions and try to do stuff like comonatic annotations on nodes. And, you know, I was, I was very excited and come to find out both Scala and Haskell have really nice implicit coercions if you can provide a, uh, a function you know it's like a witness to the you know natural transformation or whatever so you can like just say like oh well a list you know can be represented like this or this and, or my array can be a list boom do it and in JavaScript you're continually working to convert your function your types into fixed point types if you're going to do recursion schemes and it's just so not fun and, and you end up with types that are really hard to work with so 
So JavaScript is, is not great for stuff like that, which you can go way, way, way further in uh, Scala. I don't know if you've seen Matryoshka in Scala. It's amazing. One of the first books I tried to read on category theory was McLean's Category Theory for the Working Mathematician. And that was a mistake, <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> but one of the first things that he says, he, what he basically said is that the whole reason he invented category theory was to get to natural transformations. Wow. And he also said that con extensions, which are an right. elaboration of natural extensions, are everywhere. And it's interesting to me, you're talking about, you can get up the sort of abstraction ladder in Haskell all the way up. Right, right. Or as far as you need to go. And in JavaScript, you get stuck. Yeah. Well and before what a category theorist would say are where all of the interesting things are. I mean, you can encode common extensions in JavaScript, but they're not going to do much for you. And yeah, and I think... Uh, when you see like Edward Komet's code, you know, kind of exploiting all these ideas in Haskell, you know, some of the stuff ends up being really useful and some of it's just a fun academic exercise. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, Chris Penner, big fan of his, and he's just been doing so many cool practical things with this really heavy, heavy machinery from category theory. And what's, you know, the allure for, I imagine you're in the same boat as me, is that like if you can have these lawful based abstractions, then awesome, let's use it as much as possible because then we can keep building on those. But as soon as you stray away and just have some kind of you know code that does whatever, then it's you know it might be better for that one specific case. And there's this tension between the very general lawful version and what you're actually trying to accomplish in your program. <laughs> and sometimes it's not quite right. I think creator Evan Japlicki was talking about that in, in a forum at some point. He was like, all these type classes are great, but they're always just almost what I want, but they're not exactly what I want. <laughs> and I think, you know, you could shoehorn your problem or formulate your problem in certain ways to get that to work. But yeah. a lot of the, the higher category theory stuff feels like that to me. I'm like, I, I get there and it's not Quite what I need, but there's amazing applications like transforming lazy to eager, for instance, with representable, you know, just the Yoneda stuff. And, and I think con extensions left and right, one of them's eager, one's lazy in a lot of cases. Uh, yeah, this is where my my limits and my knowledge start to hit. Like those are those are intense. <laughs> yeah, it's it, even in Haskell, the vast majority of the the practice, what practitioners of Haskell are doing, does not explicitly use con extensions. Right. Does not explicitly use the machinery of category theory that's available to them. Right. It's generally true in most disciplines that there's a research practice gap. Right. Yeah. I mean, pick a pick a field where there are both researchers and practitioners and the researchers don't talk to the practitioners and the practitioners mostly don't talk to the researchers. Right. And it's it's true in in functional programming. And, you know, folks like you that are attempting to build a bridge between what uh, Stephen Chorick calls the two islands in the same sea, <laughs> right. I think, are, are doing a, it's a useful service. If nothing else, it makes people aware of some of the cutting edge uh, ideas, but there's no feedback loop. <laughs> it's always it's one way. Mm -hmm. It's like, go look at academia. Mm -hmm. And for me, I have to fight through a white paper for, you know, a week, sometimes <laughs> skipping parts that I don't understand and revisiting and watching another video to come back and try and understand that part. And, mm -hmm. You know, there are people that are much better at that than I am. They can yeah. just sit down and read it in one sitting. <laughs> um, not, and, I don't know that that's true. So Edward Komet gave me the best advice I've ever gotten about how to read a paper. Okay. He said, read the abstraction in the first section and file yeah. it away in your brain. Yes. And do that for a lot of papers. Okay. And then what will happen is you'll see a problem and you go, oh, I know something that might be relevant here. Right. And then you'll go find that paper. Nice. And then the second piece of advice he gave me was when you read the paper, pick fights with it, challenge it. If the paper says, when this, this, and this are true, say, why does that need to be true? What happens if it's this way instead? Right. And he, he pointed out that if you do this, then one of two things will happen. One, you will have a new result that could be published. Right. Or right. two, you'll better understand why the paper is written the way it's written. 
Exactly. That was a, that was a really cool. I remember uh, Phil Freeman did uh, counter examples for type classes, and it just you just without them, it's really hard to understand. Like here's all all, all the lawful ones, and you never see counter examples for some of these. And it was such a great exercise, and I think that's great advice. And it's it's how I read books too, right? I'll read a book and be like, yeah, 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 yeah. This is talking about this. I'll come back if I need it. <laughs> so it's it's a it's good advice to look at abstraction or abstracts like that. I, although I um I think. For me, when I usually read a paper, it's because I want to, I'm like, okay, I know it and I, I want to learn this. I, I like, I found the paper I want. So I, I think I need to do a better job at uh, indexing other things so I can go find it. Usually I'm like, I, I find something I'm, I'm very interested in learning and then I have to battle it for, for a long, long time. And then, you know, it, it helps to code it and code it in a programming language. You take, the math or the ideas or whatever and then you you make it work in a program the way you can make it work and that leads to a much much better understanding or solidifies your misunderstanding <laughs> but i think you can typically if you encode an idea with your own code it, it really helps me learn a lot so you were talking about finding applications for some of these concepts um, yeah we have, I think we have good reason to believe that these concepts are generally applicable because of the, the, the Turing church correspondence between uh, Turing machines and Lambda calculus. So it, it seems likely that when we're programming Turing machines, we can do it with Lambda calculus, which is a category, you know, so it, it seems reasonable to assume that category theoretic concepts apply pretty directly to programming. But programming isn't an end. It's a means for humans to do stuff, right? right? And it's less clear that human society is organized as a category. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> sure, it's, less, sure. it's less clear that the things that computers can do are the things that we need to be able to do. It's, it seems more that we've organized human society around what computers can do rather than the other way around. Right. Yeah, I think that hints at the the empathy for for being like, all right, now we're all going to learn this this rigid style that we're all going to stick within because our, our language can't express everything, and then we all have to rely on each other to express this stuff. Or it's like TDD, right? And uh, how do you know that everybody's writing perfect coverage and all their stuff is tested uh, without rigid code yeah. reviews and social? Yeah, it's a it's really it's a good point, and especially if you're in your language that helps you be correct more like if we're writing agda code or something you can you could end up being very uh you know less reliant on other people but then it's much more hard for again it's harder for people to join in so anyway uh yeah. there's uh, there's these tensions so i'm going to try to tie this into uh, machine learning now okay the strong ai period that started with turing in the 1950s was based fundamentally on the assumption that there was an equivalence between human brains and turing machines and it turned out that that's not true. And then we had the AI winter where we were very pessimistic about AI. And modern advances in this area are not around based on the assumption that you can encode a brain as a very complex decision tree. They are right. around something pretty different. Machine learning is not like that in a, in a fundamental way. Right, right. Very much agree. So, yeah, we're talking about categories. I'm just keeping this all in my head. So we got categories, <laughs> humans. Not a disconnect there, even though yeah. there was them to Turing machines, and now artificial intelligence is not. Uh, so again, artificial intelligence is in some like modern artificial intelligence is in some way a way to recognize what's happened in cognition research and and such in the last you know fifty years, where it seems to be the case that human cognition is continuous, and we are still working with computers that are discrete right but right. if you look at the behavior like if you look at uh, a neural net and you yeah. watch what it's doing its behavior does not seem discrete i think but, no it, it doesn't seem discrete in that yeah it can fill in the gaps and fill in the blanks i'm yeah. i'm extremely interested in generative ai mm -hmm. much more than you know predictive discriminative uh, kind of like so and and that and that also hints towards that like you you can project into the future really far as a, almost the computer has an imagination and that that generation fills a lot more gaps than you know this is what I've seen in the past this is what I think will happen <laughs> so, uh, so yeah there's definitely 
for a while now, there's been pretty good scientific evidence that human cognition is continuous on the scale of like weeks to months, like our changes in beliefs and attitudes are continuous. We don't have one belief and then at some point in the future, now we have a different one. We move gradually from one place to the other. But there's also a growing body of evidence that human cognition is continuous on the time scale of milliseconds. Right. That mental states are actually places in a highly dimensional space. And that we move continuously through that space and that, for example, recognizing a word is yeah. an approach towards a particular attractor within that space. So okay. there's this growing idea of cognitive gravity. Interesting. That, I've never I've never heard of this, and this is amazing. Thank you for talking about it. Um, yeah, there's, I, a, there's a paper that I'll, I'll link. To tie it back to functional programming, you can totally encode spaces as, with comonads, and, uh, you know, <laughs> that's that's a fun fun tidbit. I, I've been spending my time trying to apply ML to generative models in, you know, design and UIs and other kind of areas of, of you know, in that realm. And it, it is, it gets really exciting when you think about it that way of like, we're in the space and everything's, de- you know, there's all this spatial dependencies and, you know, neural nets are, are capable of learning about to full circle, right? <laughs> the morphisms, uh, the arrows in between the, the points and filling those gaps. I think, I forgot who it was, like the father of AI or something said it was like everything just amounted to curve fitting. But I take much more of a uh, optimistic view on we could train machines to work a little bit more like we do. I don't know if we'll ever get to our full cognitive abilities or maybe it'll go beyond it in certain verticals. But as far as the generative side, I think that that spreads that space much more than a prediction given a bunch of features. Speaking of generative computer things, you know what um, L systems are? Yeah, I do, but I don't. L systems are, you see like the images of this thing that looks like a plant with like multiply repeated but slightly different variations of leaves and such. Okay. That's an L, that can be generated by L systems. L systems were originally used to study the growth of cells. Okay. And so what an L system is, is it's a parallel rewrite system okay. where you take a string and you have a rule for turning one. So you take an, an alphabet, a set of characters, and you take a string of those characters and you have a rule for turning one character into zero or more characters. And you okay. apply that in parallel to every character at the same time, generating a new string. And that's the next step in the generation of this L system. And then you keep doing that iteratively over and over again. So it's like a commonatic melee machine or something. It like is exactly... So the step is yeah. a monadic bind. Nice. On uh, lists. Mm. So the monadic bind for lists replaces a, in the case of strings, replaces a character with zero or more characters. Oh, there you go. And it does okay. it at the same time for every character in the string. So yeah. the monad for lists is a parallel rewrite system for lists. Interesting. I, I like that. I, and I've heard of this, I think probably learning about Markov properties and reinforcement learning, it must have come up and I've seen the, the term a lot. I've never heard the definition so clearly. That's wonderful. Thank you. So the interesting thing for me there is that this abstraction, the monad, which gets some bad press, <laughs> it's often sort of reduced to being about computation in some way or being about containers in some way. Right. But there are many different interpretations, even for the same monad. Right, so a lot of right. people think of the monad for lists as being about non-determinism. You mentioned this earlier. Right. Monad for lists is pick one from a number of choices, right? Yes, yes. But the monad for lists is also about parallel rewriting as an instance of tree rewriting in general. Right, right. I, I totally agree with that. I think there's all those different, you kind of learn this abstraction on an abstraction like, oh, okay, I know what a monad is. Now I need to know what the concrete use case is, uh, like in either, and then wh- what do I use either for? And then there's more abstractions. And it gets really hard for people to keep that in their head. And, and it could be worthwhile to walk through different ways of thinking about each of these and apply them in a bunch of different situations and being like, we could think of it this way. Let's use it like that. We could think of it this way. Let's use it like that. And um, there's not enough of that out in the world. So we're, we were just talking about generativity and the thing that i really wish i could convince people we're talking about systems with laws and a lot of people think of these laws as creating limits on what can be done 
on what's possible. But if, right. if you look at the monad, for example, and all of these different interpretations and all of these different ways that it can be used, many of which weren't conceived of by the category theorists who first came up with the abstraction, these systems of laws are generative. Yeah, yeah. Are you saying in, in, in terms of how they interact with each other or how they uh, end, end up growing as you... In the sense that they don't reduce the space of possibilities, they actually enlarge it. Right, yeah. Okay. Constraints liberate, liberties constrain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, it's hard for people to to feel that like, oh, I'm putting handcuffs on my my program, but all of a sudden now I know now I have all this freedom and, and refactoring and, and understanding how people use it and you know flexibility and yeah, it's, it's counterintuitive for a lot of people. Yeah. One of the other things that monads are for, and you can't see my quotes, but I'm doing air quotes, um, <laughs> is I'll, they, I'll they provide a principled way to refactor procedural programs. The monad law you ways to move things around that are correct in procedural programs. Yeah, that's really interesting to me, too, because funny enough, it comes up quite a bit with async await and uh, promises in JavaScript, people tend to, they're like, oh, well, this is a new feature. I'll just switch all my promises to async await. And you're reverting to procedural when you do that effectively. And then you get people that are typically like, oh, well, I want my code to read nice and I want this big pile of promise then jungle gym that I have to climb through to read my code. But the big difference there, I think, is the mechanical refactoring of this step-by-step -step process, which is spilling variables out every which way as it goes. It's like the Katamari, of, you know, like as you read your instructions, you just get more and more state because you're assigning your async calls to a variable. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I promise you're capturing it in a minimal closure and you can throw away the variable from then on out, right? We're done. That's usually when I tell people, like, well, if you need a lot of variables at the same time, like that, that is, if your for comprehension is going to be a lot of lines, you're going to continually grab more state and use all of it mm -hmm. at the end, mm -hmm. then, you know, then you should consider async await. And if you're, if, if you're not, then that's probably the worst thing you can do. That's like, you should always <laughs> gravitate towards the, you know, constraints rather than the liberties because then you have more things to problem. I have a couple comments on that. Uh, right, I, think yeah. that I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. I, I mostly agree. Um, I would say that async await is the do notation encoding of promises, right? It's is, the first yeah. thing. Totally. And the second is that in Haskell, do notation, this procedural way to work with monads, desugars directly and without any fuss into monadic operations. Right. And so it is very easy to show for yourself that the change you made to this procedural bit of code in a do block desugars into something that you can prove is still correct, is a correct transformation by applying things like the monad laws and the free theorems you get from the types of the things you're working with. Right. And one of the things that's great about working with Haskell is you can say that, whereas in JavaScript, you can only sort of suggest it. Right, right. Again, there's, you, you can't often enforce laws, you know, or you can't at all yet in Haskell. And so there's still, there's still a, a gap there, but it helps you so much more. And, yeah. um, the compiler will take the place of the, you know, your constant anxiety of like, is this? <laughs> yeah, like in Haskell, the laws are external to the system, right? They take the form of documentation. They're not right. encoded into the types like they can be in other languages. But yeah, you're, you're right about, you know, the it's that's the dual, right? Like you have your procedural that desugars into a nice composition and you can choose the composition when you'd like to get rid of these variables kind of the stateful variables kind of growing in your code. And that's that's usually the, the, the guideline I follow when I when I choose one or the other. But it's uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on when you said mostly agree, if there's uh, other times that you would rather choose a do notation over well, I'm not sure if I would rather choose a do notation. I personally think that the choice to use monads that Philip Wadler made, I guess it was like back in the early 90s or something like that. I don't remember exactly when the monads for functional programming paper came out, but it was an application of category theory to the practice of programming. So it was an attempt to bridge the, the research practice you know, gap that we talked about before. Right. But it's not the only way that you can conceive of effectful computation. 
Yeah. Um, there are some other ideas that I think are more compelling that haven't really bridged the researcher practitioner gap yet. A lot of them come from Connor McBride. So he has a programming Huge language called, called Frank. Okay. So named because I'm not going to be able to do his prose justice. Um, but <laughs> the paper introducing Frank is called Doobie Doobie Doo. Because <laughs> he always <laughs> has the best paper names. Yeah. And it is basically about how I, I'm sure he's going to disagree with me, but I think it's about how the factful combination is a between doing and being. Interesting. So almost like you're splitting up your declarative program into expressions that are just facts versus expressions that are actually going to go do kind of like. I, I think so. I'm not sure that I really understand Connor McBride. <laughs> I love, yeah, uh, I saw one of his talks and he's like, well, here's my functor kit. And it's just like, boom, all of a sudden, like higher level functors mm -hmm. right off the bat. I was like, oh my gosh, okay, here we go. I, I like how in every talk he talks about how much he likes to define binary functions that take three variables. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Because uh, they're higher level. Nice. Um, the, but any, uh, so the idea of Frank is. What if effectfulness was the default? What if the ambient environment in which computation was performed was effectful? And what if certain computations could select which effects they allow or produce? Yeah, fair enough. Kind of like, sort of like co-effects, where you're declaring in the type. Well, there's a bunch of different ways to go about it, but... Um... It, yes, but it's, the, the duality here is that it's a form of sort of effect inference, almost, huh. where... I know what effects I need because of the effects that previous computations required and the effects that my computation produces determines the effects. So in other words, if I'm a, if I'm a computation that has to read from the file system, I have to be executed in an environment which allows reading from the file system. Right. But it could also right. allow other arbitrary things. Yeah, I, I remember reading a little bit about about that. There was a lot of excitement maybe three years ago about like CoFX and, and environments. And CoFX, I, I think now is definitely kind of solidified as like try-catch generalized or whatever. But for a while there, people were talking about how you can inject an environment or type verify an environment in the same breath as CoFX. So I'm wondering if the term split. Yeah, he, he's pretty explicit about this not being an effect system. Right. And being an alternative. And I, I'm not going to attempt to justify that claim because I don't understand it really well enough yet. But I definitely recommend reading the paper. I also wonder how many of our listeners we just lost. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's still. try to let's try to bring this back. Let's try to relate this back to something that people who aren't functional programming nerds might yeah. care more about. I, I would love to just talk about this for two hours, but I suspect that not everyone feels the same way. Well, you know, the way I look at it is everybody, you know, essentially what we're talking about when we abstract procedures into named, you know, compositional uh, units is you have to capture their effects or else they don't compose. They just, there's no, there's lawlessness. Like it's total anarchy if they're able to do whatever effect they want because you don't know if you can call this function a whole bunch. And perhaps there's a new set of laws that, like idempotence, you know, could not the mathematical version, but the programming version of that might hint you towards like, oh, okay, I can't call this function more than once. It's probably doing something bad. But I think when when we're talking about tackling effects in programs, uh, which is the big divide between pure functional programming and, and imperative programming, uh, it becomes really difficult to just, you know, if you pick, you know, one of the five strategies I've seen out there, you know, cofex aren't really ready monads are tons of boilerplate. I don't even believe that, you know, the object algebras or final tag list is like still a fully baked idea. Seems like it's just subclassing. I don't know. But so you can go with like interpreters and instructions or you can go with monad transformers and, you know, big this big this giant thing. Or you can go with like the Zio, Rio approach where you kind of inject your effects via reader monad. And, you know, there's there's a handful of ways to, to achieve effects and all of them still fall short of being something that we really want. So I think if the industry is more aware of these and we're working on that together, ideas like Frank, if I'm going to go check out that paper, hopefully we'll have more of those ideas. Like we still want to capture the laws, still want to have simple composition, but we don't want to have to manage all these, these, you know, these really complex types to, to do it. 
Yeah, I, I also think it's interesting that there's, you know, there are these, like, the freer effects library and things like that are concrete things that practitioners can use. You know, so they are, in some sense, bridging the researcher-practitioner divide, but they stop at some point before where it's really practical for not the people who write libraries, but for the people who just want to use libraries to get their job done, to right. pick them up and, and, and use them to do their work. And I wonder, there's a, like, there's a part of the gap between these, these two islands is, is getting smaller. We're building the bridges, but the gap now seems to be more in the area of, we know how to make a thing in a programming language that embodies this concept, but how do we actually make it something people want to use? <laughs> and that's where we get back to empathy. Yeah, that's a, that's a great tie into that. I did it. <laughs> yeah. Bravo. Yeah. And I think that's, that is the key is that, you know, if you, if you're an academic, if you're putting yourself in the shoes of someone just trying to get something done, you know, or you're trying to get something done and you're putting yourself in the shoes of like, you know, how do we, how do we further our industry? How do I do this the best I can possibly do it? Like, um, yeah, perhaps there's empathy on both sides that could really, you know, help bridge the gap even more is get academics to think like practitioners and vice versa. Maybe we could start to, to move the needle a little bit that way. But, you know, at the same time, I think a lot of this is, is really fun side project stuff. And part of the allure for me, at least, is like, ooh, what if this paper, you know, what if I find the best use for this, this idea? And it like, you know, we come up with the coolest app that, you know, like promises have been around forever. And then somebody decided to port it to JavaScript. Oh, awesome. <laughs> but like, you know, some of these new ideas that are coming out, if somebody brings it over sooner, we could, you know, have have so many more toys to play with and, and ways to solve our problems that are that are nicer. And if we have the community chiming in, I think that creates that conversation that could lead us towards the, the APIs we enjoy. Like denotational semantics can help also bridge that gap, I suppose, because you can use that to, to help understand APIs. And by the way, I didn't, have you seen uh, Connell Elliott's uh, talk on the machine learning for functional programming with machine learning yet? No, I haven't. Uh, I, I haven't either. I'm, I can't wait to watch it. <laughs> but I suspect some of this is in there. I, don't know. I would like to interview him again. Uh, he's, he comes down to the Hacker Dojo in, what was it, like Redwood City or something, or Mountain View, I think, uh, every once in a while for Haskell meetups. He's mm -hmm. a nice person. <laughs> yeah, he's a nonviolent communication practitioner and genuinely one of the nicest people I've met. And yeah, big fan of his. Yeah, I'm always blown away by his work nonstop, which is which is really cool. I think I've lost a lot of motivation myself in doing some of the stuff he does because he's just so good. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just going to wait for him to do it and then learn from him. He's, he's also a great communicator. Another interesting thing that happens is that people take great ideas and then there is a telephone game that happens between the idea and the implementation. Mm. Um, so... You could pick in almost anything for this, you know, Agile, for example. One of them is functional reactive programming. All right. <laughs> Which flavor? Yeah. There's and a... it must be very difficult for Connor to resist the temptation to tell everyone doing FRP to get off his lawn. <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that is a, a testament, well and testament to his uh, ability as a great communicator and, and listener. Um. <laughs> He's like, FRP is about this very specific thing. And everyone's like, oh, it's about other things. Great. Cool. We're still going to call it FRP, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I can remember his papers correctly, it was really about capturing the essence of time um, yeah. through data. Continuous, by the way, yeah. continuous time. Continuous time as a concrete, tangible uh, data type that you're working with, I think. And then, you know, and then we end up with uh, all sorts of, you know, the revolution of reactive programming in Scala. We're going to merge the actor system with event streams and call it a thing. Yeah. So this is another interesting possible example of a thing we could have an entire other show about, which is what I think is a general human tendency towards discrete representations of continuous phenomena. Human yeah. brains like it when things are discrete. We're very good at taxonomization. We like to put things in categories, even when they don't fit. <laughs> they, most things don't. Russell's but we paradox like right to there. say, here's this boundary. These things are on this side of it. These things are on the other side of it. And there, and there's nothing, there's, it's an impermeable boundary. 
but the real world is is almost never like that. Right. I I got pretty into simulation theory for a while there. And yeah, there was people out there searching for those limits, right? I think, and, and that speaks to the, the human tendency to, to want to find those limits, if not to prove that we're in a simulation, like, aha, I found a limit. Yeah, um, but, I mean, like, if you look at computers, what did we do? We made a discrete machine in a continuous environment. Like, the whole thing about digital is you take a signal that can be not quite one or not quite zero, and you represent it discreetly. Right, and perhaps... We can move beyond that with whatever quantum computing or something. <laughs> but, you know, it, it does help quite a bit to maybe make things discrete. And then uh, perhaps there's some kind of category theory construct out there that can discretize and continue, you know. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Us. I mean, you can't argue with the effectiveness of this plan. It, it's just that it, like everything that has a particular sort of operational range, uh, humans don't want to keep it in that range. We want to apply it to all sorts of things. Right. And that's, that's, that's interesting to, uh, take the, the you know, opposite of that too. Yeah. Like this is much bigger, but we're going to crunch it down or this is really small and we're going to break outside of those limits. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's interesting too, though, that it's, it's really inspirational. Like if, if somebody comes up with an idea and then you just abuse it, you might end up with something new and exciting, right? Uh, and then playing by the rules all the time. So I don't want to discount it, but it should, you should be pretty uh, explicit about your abuse, I think. So this has been great. And I think we're sort of ready to start winding down. Cool. Is there anything else that you'd really like to uh, talk about? Uh, no, this is good. I mean, I, I originally intended to talk about anytime I learn something, I want to teach it immediately because I'm so excited about it. But I'm not qualified to teach it yet because I haven't really sat with it and felt it around like or understood a concept all the way to to really be able to teach it from every angle and answer all the questions and really, really grasp it myself. Um, and teaching is a way to grasp it. But you're out there. You might be misleading a lot of people with that. So what I found to keep myself interested is to make teaching art projects or try to think of it as a. Oh, I have a new way to kind of express this uh, that I think will mm -hmm. resonate with people. And then I yeah. get motivated again. But at the same time, sometimes that is fun and interesting for me to teach, but then ends up being very difficult for people to follow because like, I'm like, oh, I made this art project that I want to teach you. Right. Like, I have all these visual visualizations that I think are good, but that you might not think are good. So that was my intention coming here. But I think our conversation was much more fun and I, I learned a lot. I, I want to tell you a thing that I think might help you with this whole I'm not ready to teach thing, <laughs> sure. which is that teaching and learning is a false dichotomy, which mm. is that the way that knowledge actually happens is that it's constructed through reciprocal relationships. Every teacher also has to be a learner. Right. If nothing else, you have to learn through empathy, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, where they're at. Right. How they learn. And you use that to build from both ends towards the middle where you're, you're the, the yeah, understandings yeah. that you're trying to, to share. That's, that's, a, that's a great way to put that. I, I forget the quote somebody told me a long time ago about, you know, a great teacher teaches you how they see the world, but, or, you know, the best teacher teaches you, you know, the way you see the world or something, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, that it takes a lot of creativity and a lot of empathy and, and, and yeah, learning about the other person to start, but also learning about, just, you know, the ways of teaching, how to be creative, how to be agile and on your feet to be able to leap onto. It's almost like a like a psychology thing where if somebody says something that I can, it'll instantly put me where their misunderstanding might lie and not not having that ability to really like be in tune with people and, and be focused and learning from them is a big flaw mm -hmm. of teachers. So this idea that learning is a conversation comes from Gordon Pask, who wrote a book called The Cybernetics of Human Learning and Performance. And it is based on constructivist theories of psychology and sociology, which say that, you know, humans construct their experiences together. And one of the things that we construct together is knowledge. Right. So it's like, a, and it's, it's really rewarding. It's one of the most rewarding things, I think, is getting to that place where, where you feel like you've constructed the full picture and you're like, I get it. I get this now, if I understand that correctly. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, what, what was his kind of point there, the book, if I may ask? I was kind of, kind well, of uh, the, filling the, in the gap myself. 
the the book is about a whole bunch of things the the point i guess of the conversational theory is that learning requires relationships and it requires bi-directional communication i.e conversation right. and that teaching isn't just a thing that i do at you right learning and teaching is a thing that we do together Gotcha. So yeah, I, I assumed I assumed as much. I just wanted to make sure I understood correctly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's very interesting. So to keep it interesting to teach something that I might not feel either I'm feel fully qualified to teach something and then it stays interesting by that adventure together or mm -hmm. new ways to try to capture knowledge. And then the other the other side of it is you're you're teaching when you're not fully understanding something, but you're very explicit about that. And you're like, this is how far I understand it but I'm so excited mm -hmm. to tell you mm -hmm. about it. And I'm not far away enough from shore that I still understand everything you're going through trying to to, to learn mm -hmm. this too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, this frame that I think you found of like, you know, here's the thing that I found. Let's, let's, you know, discover it together. You know, let's build something together so that we can learn together is sort of what it's about. That's how it always works. That's, that's beautiful. I like that. I think it's a great way to end this show. <laughs> yeah. So this is the part of the show where we uh, that we call Reflections, where we do that thing. A lot of these shows are really insightful for us and sometimes also for the guests. And it can be difficult to boil that down into a sentence or two. You know, we, we've, we've talked a bit about the perils of reductionism. So instead of trying to boil anything down, I'm just going to talk about something that was really significant uh, for me in this conversation. We usually let the guests go last, but why don't you go first? All right, cool. So you explained L systems so simply and beautifully that I can take that with me now and, and use that as a launching point to, to look into it further without having no idea of what's going on. I'm very excited to read about Frank because <laughs> I'm in my endless pursuit of uh, easier effects. Uh, seems like something that I'd be really interested in. And uh, finally, yeah, the, just the, the range that we impose, I think, it shifted my thinking a little bit when you mentioned that because I actually, when you first brought up, you know, the range in Haskell and JavaScript of, you know, capacity of teaching functional programming, I was thinking more of like Haskell gives you much more tools to teach it. But JavaScript, if you made a pie chart of the population of people using it, like the range is much bigger there. And, and thinking in terms of those, those ranges, I think is worthwhile when you make decisions in your career and, and just day to day. In the same way that uh, thinking probabilities has affected my life, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to throw in ranges now. Yeah, so one of the things about this idea of, of ranges, implicit in the idea that there's a left wall and a right wall and that there's variation between, is the idea that you can actually rank things along a dimension. But dimensionality is a way of making things discrete, right? We say, here's a thing we can measure on a line. Right. right, that's discrete now. In fact, I don't think variety is dimensional, right? Dimensionality is a, is like every other form of taxonomization, something that humans impose on the world. It's not a part of the structure of the world, but it's very useful for us that we do this. For example, stereotypes, you know, and generalizations of all sorts, we need them to survive in the world, you know? Sure. Um it's a it's a useful heuristic. But I also think we need to be very conscious of the fact that it is a heuristic, that it is an imposition on the world that we use to understand it, not a part of the world itself. And, yeah. And earlier I was like, oh, yeah, there's got to be a category theory thing that goes back and forth. And there are junctions, right? Uh, you have this continuous space and you can you know, go into this you know, fixed realm and then get back to the mm -hmm. uh, continuous uh, somewhere along the line. <laughs> Maybe so not exactly. By the way, I mentioned the word cybernetics, and Gordon Pask uh, defined in, in that book defined cybernetics as the art or science of creating defensible metaphors. And right. Stafford Beer, another founder of cybernetics, very explicitly talked about how we create isomorphisms between systems that are structure preserving. I one of the ways I think about cybernetics is as an attempt to apply category theory to basically everything. By people right. who didn't know that category theory existed. <laughs> that's that's kind of awesome. And yeah, it's a formalization around the idea. It's one of the formalizations. I'm still working on homotopia. I got no idea what's going on there. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, that's, interestingly, that's, homotopy is is a way to make something discrete into something continuous. 
Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so equality in homotopy theory is not a point, it's a path. Right. I do know that. And I have worked a bit with topology, but I, I have struggled to really understand how homotopy applies to type theory in a way that, to, to carry that metaphor over, besides mm -hmm. just kind of automatic coercion of type structure. <laughs> well, this has been really fun. Yeah, uh, it was super cool. I'd love to I'd love to come back on the show and continue these conversations. I'm learning so yeah. much from you. Also, um, we have a Slack and you're if you haven't been invited, you'll get a, a follow up email with an invite and we're all in it. We have a really great community there and we'd love to have you. Cool. Well I will see you on the Slack then. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.